Oh, I am excited every Sunday. But especially today as we're jumping into a brand new sermon series that I get to kick off that we're calling Upside Down Living. Because we're going to dig into just the first part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives us a list of what a really blessed life looks like. And it might not be what you're thinking. You see, when we use that word blessed, we are so often talking about something very different than Jesus was talking about. I mean, think about it. When you hear the word blessed, do you think about a blessed life? What comes to your mind? Is it having a great marriage, gifted children, good health, fulfilling work, financial stability, freedom to travel, the ability to retire early, lifelong friends? What? What comes to your mind? Well, Jesus unpacks what it means to be blessed in the first 10 verses of his Sermon on the Mount in what has become known as the Beatitudes, which is simply a Latin word that meant blessed or happy. And when we dig into Jesus' definition of happy or blessed, I think you're going to be surprised about what is and is not on his list. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Matthew 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So think in terms of a concentric circles. Big crowd, but his disciples, those that are saying they're his followers, have come in closer, but the overall crowd can hear it. And, and one of the things I want you to get from this passage, Jesus was never trying to be a mega church. He was never trying to see how many just big, huge crowd followers he'd get. He was always clarifying what his message truly was. And he usually ended up saying very hard things that thinned the crowd. Big crowds, disciples come in closer. He sits down, which was the habit in that day when someone taught, and he begins to speak these words. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Now, there is so much good stuff here in these 10 to 12 verses that we're going to stay in this series all the way until Christmas. And so here's all I want to do today. All I want to do today is frame it up and lay some groundwork and answer two questions. What is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? And number two, who are the kingdom people in it? What is this kingdom and who are the kingdom people in it? In other words, what do kingdom people look like? How do they live? How do they think? 
What are the distinguishing marks or characteristics of people in the kingdom, Christ followers? Why is this important? So that you could know whether or not you are one of them. Let's answer that first question. So what is this kingdom Jesus is talking about? It is worth noting that these beatitudes are sandwiched in between or bookended by two references to the kingdom. Look at it again in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the, say it, kingdom of heaven. And then look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. And Jesus spoke about it incessantly, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but all through his teaching in the Gospels, you'll see it. So I think it would be a good idea for us to get our heads around what is he talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God or heaven because it is related to who is and who is not in it. You see, this may rock some of you. You will never find Jesus saying to somebody, accept me into your heart. You will never see Jesus saying, accept me as your Lord and Savior. Instead, you see Jesus saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or repent and enter the kingdom. In fact, when you see him talking with Nicodemus about being born again in John chapter three, you remember that? He says, unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom. And later in that same conversation, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom. In other words, new birth introduces you into a new kingdom with a new king Jesus. So what is the kingdom? Well, I think the kingdom of God could best be understood if you think about it in terms of what happens when somebody new comes into power or office, right? That happens all the time. No matter whether it's a president, a governor, a mayor, a king, a CEO, when they come into power, That person comes into power and they always bring with them a new administration, whole new administration. In other words, they bring with them a new set of priorities and policies as well as a set of strategies as to how they're going to implement it all. So stay with me. Jesus did not come to just be a good teacher. Jesus did not come to just feed the hungry and heal some people. He certainly did not come to wander around Palestine wondering out loud who he was and why he's here. Jesus is the ultimate king who's been given all authority and power to establish a new administration that he calls the kingdom of God. And he wants you to know that the effects of this new kingdom are more comprehensive and radical than you could ever imagine. And that's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing us just how far reaching and how radical 
the transformation is on people who have entered the kingdom. In other words, if you don't understand the context of his inaugurating a radical new kingdom, you'll never understand the purpose and radical nature of the Beatitudes that are describing his kingdom people. Without the kingdom, the Beatitudes just start sounding like some Chinese proverb that you crush open a cookie and pull out this piece of paper. Blessed are the merciful. That is lovely. That's so beautiful. It's so wise and beautiful. And every now and then, it's just describing some people you might run into occasionally in life. They're merciful. They're a peacemaker. That's so nice. Jesus never intended to communicate that these are eight different characteristics of some people you might run into somewhere out there, some point in your life. Not at all. These are eight characteristics or beatitudes that are all describing one particular group of people. People who are in the kingdom and have submitted to King Jesus. That's very different. That's very radical. That is very crowd thinning. And so that brings us right up to that second question. So how do you know if you're in the kingdom or not? I've been a pastor over three decades now and all people can struggle with I don't know, am I a Christian? Am I in the kingdom? Am I a Christ follower? I don't know, I'm still not sure. Sometimes I think so, sometimes I think not. But if you're not careful, here's the mistake I watch people make and they make it all the time. They'll start comparing their experience or their circumstances that led them to faith in Christ with someone else's experience or circumstances that led them to Christ. And that can be very dangerous, friends, because the experience or the circumstances that lead someone to Christ can look very different. Some people are quite emotional. It was a huge emotional experience. For other people, there were very little emotions involved and it was very intellectual. Some people know the day that they were shattered and melted and broken and and other people don't have a date. It was like a dawning. It was like an awakening. You don't want to start comparing your experience or circumstances with someone else. You certainly don't want to start doing this. Here's what I hear. I don't know. I asked Jesus in my heart, but I'm going to ask again. And did I mean it? Did I mean it when I said it? I was baptized. I don't know. I'm going to get baptized again. I was baptized in the name of Jesus. Maybe it should be the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Did I go down once? Should I go down three times? When I threw the stick in the fire at youth camp, did I really, did I hurl it or did I just drop it? I don't know. They go back and they comb, but notice what the emphasis is on. Where is the emphasis? What they did. Did I do this thing just right? Did I feel the right emotions? Did I experience the right things? Did I, that's quite fruitless and very dangerous and you don't see Jesus going down that path. He doesn't approach it that way at all. In fact, Jesus cuts right through all the confusion by instead describing 
the distinguishing marks and characteristics of people who are in the kingdom. Stop looking back and saying, well, I was seven. I don't know really today. Jesus says, don't get all tangled up in how you got there. Let me tell you what kingdom people look like, the distinguishing marks and characteristics, how they think, how they live. And then ask yourself, are these distinguishing marks evident in my life to any degree? That's what Jesus wants you to ask. Do I, don't put your trust in some formula or whatever in the past. Do I have these distinguishing characteristics or marks in my life to any degree? Because this is what kingdom people look like and this is how kingdom people live by God's grace. And guess what? It is radically different than the way the rest of the world lives and thinks. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man or woman's in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Oh, you still have problems. You still have sin struggles. You still have, but your perspective on the world, your approach to other people is, is as radical as the Beatitudes are saying that it is. It's so different. It's so different. And I do think that the order in which he gives these beatitudes also matters. Because it appears to me that the, that the first four beatitudes seem to lay a foundation for the rest. So that you're not going to see the final four in your life until the first four have taken root to some degree in your life. Here's what I mean. You won't be a merciful person. You won't be pure in heart. You won't be a peacemaker. You'll be that person that just stirs it up at work and with everybody. And you will not be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus until first you're poor in spirit, mourning, meek, and hungering and thirsting after Righteousness. These first four, I believe, stand and fall together. So let's unpack these first four Beatitudes a little, and we'll dig into them some more in the weeks ahead. But here's why I think the first four stand and fall together, because they all have to do with this universal fact and awareness that there's a problem with human beings. There is a problem in our world. I mean, most thinking people, whether they're Christians or not, are willing to recognize except for a few silly people that are being paid big bucks to be a professor somewhere, like evil, there's no evil. Oh, shut up. Most people, thinking people, whether believers or unbelievers, recognize there's a problem in our world. There is a problem. Because the daily news just keeps pushing it up in our faces. It is inescapable. You cannot avoid it. You cannot get away from it. Our badness haunts us. And we live in a day of technology that you're just made more aware of it just relentlessly. Like what even took place in our own city in Cincinnati, right? That someone would just go into Fifth Third Bank and gun down innocent people for no reason. That's the kind of world we live in. And it's troubling to most thinking people. As we realize, why are there such inequities in our world? Why are there countries where people are starving but they don't have to be starving if that country took, didn't have leaders at the top that just took all the money other countries gave them 
and didn't build a palace for themselves. What? There are countries that it's because of what they're doing in that country and it's cruel that they're starving. They don't have to be starving. The country is rich in resources, but it's why are there such inequities in the world? Why is there genocide? Why would one ethnic group try to wipe out an entire ethnic group? And we don't have to look hundreds of years ago to find that. It happens today with educated people. Why is there genocide? Why, why is there human trafficking and a sex slave trade? Oh my goodness, that's so horrific that you would snatch young girls at nine and force them into this industry and sell them to other countries. What is wrong? What is wrong? Why can't we eliminate racism? Why are there senseless murders and so many of them? Why do so many people reach a point of being so disillusioned that they're willing to take their own lives? What is wrong? There's an undeniable, inescapable problem that's painted all over the entire history of humanity. And money and technology and medical advances have not been able to eradicate it. So the first four Beatitudes show us that kingdom people, stay with me, like everybody else, see that there's a problem. But they approach this problem radically different than the rest of the world. Let me show you what I'm talking about. When you are seeing and entering the kingdom, here's the first thing that's very different. You understand that our real problem is way beyond us. The real problem is way beyond us and will never be solved by some kind of self-help. Look at verse three again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why do you think Jesus makes this the first beatitude? Poor in spirit. I think it's because by nature we are so self-sufficient and self-rich. Not poor, not poor in spirit. I mean, our first thought is not usually, I don't know, and I'll never get there. No, it's usually, I will find out, and I will get there. I'll do it, I'll do it. And Jesus knows this about us, so he hits it head on by saying that the very starting point for coming into the kingdom of God is poor in spirit, recognizing I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. And oh my goodness, when Jesus talks that way, it flies in the face of our culture. Does today, always had, has because we're so locked into a self-help, do-it-yourself, Google online, sign up for a seminar, and figure it out. I may not know today, but I'll know tomorrow. I mean, we live in a day we feel like everything can be found by a video on Google. I will re- rebuild my car engine. I will take out my own appendix. I can do it. There's a video. I'm going to find an answer on Google, and all I need to do is watch it and walk through the steps. I can do anything. Walk into any bookstore today, right? What's the biggest section gonna be? Self-help, self-improvement. Folks, it is a $10 billion a year industry in the United States alone. And it's growing at 6% 
a year. But here's what's interesting. So interesting. When you dig into it and do any reading on the statistics, it shows that there is an incredibly high recidivism rate. That's just a big word that simply means this. The person that buys a self-help book today is most likely the person that just bought one 18 months ago. So my question is, if it was so wonderful, if it was so life-changing, why do you need a new one? The language of self-help is so contrary to the way Jesus is speaking right here. Poor in spirit. Oh, no, no, no. Believe in yourself. You have what it takes. Love yourself. Actualize your amazing potential within. You can be whatever you want to be. Now, don't hear what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying hate yourself. That's a different problem. He is saying that a person who is poor in spirit knows I don't have everything I need within myself. I don't. And I can't just solve everything myself. My problem is way beyond me. In other words, the kingdom person has come to realize my problems are more than psychological, philosophical, relational, financial. My problem is a spiritual problem that I cannot solve on my own. I don't have within me what I need to solve this. It's way beyond me. And here's why I think Jesus makes this the starting point. Because so many people even try to take Christianity. This is so ingrained in us. They even try to take Christianity and turn it into self-help. Here's what it sounds like. So you're rolling along with believe in yourself, love yourself, actualize your amazing potential. You can do what you, guess what happens? They hit points in life where it's not working out. It really isn't. But here's the mistake they make. They turn to Christianity itself and try to make it a self-help thing. So they're like, I'm gonna clean myself up. I'm gonna rearrange some things in my life. I'm gonna choose better friends. I'm gonna start going to church. I'm gonna read some books so that I can get my life back on track with the success goals that I have. But it's still all about you and you're just trying to use Christianity to help you there's not a new administration there's not new policies there's not new it's still your agenda and I want to use Christianity to help me get there and that's why you hear people say things like this oh I've tried Christianity it doesn't work guess what it doesn't work when you try to use it like that oh no it won't Because you haven't yet become poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. You don't just try Christianity like some self-help book or seminar. You have to be spiritually bankrupt so that you turn to God saying, I'm not coming to you because I need some kind of seminar or booster shot. I'm coming to you because I've recognized I don't have within me what I need and you have everything save me oh God 
But now with this spiritual bankruptcy in place, poor in spirit, Jesus adds to it. And he says, when you're seeing and coming into the kingdom, number two, you realize that the spiritual problem is a sin problem that's feeding all of our other problems. Look at verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about mourning over, oh, I haven't met my goals, mourning over, I've been hurt by other people. Mm -mm. It's a mourning as you begin to recognize this is a grievous, gross sin problem. It's not, see, it's not enough just to be aware of a universal problem and to document examples of how messed up we are. Anybody can do that. Write about it, sing about it. Now, I, I'm more that side of the brain guy that I love music, I love art, I love much more than logic and science and math. And so I really appreciate, I love music, I love poetry, I love literature. And so my heart goes out to some of the most thinking people in our culture who wrestle with this. Poets, artists, musicians who see it. They see the level of darkness and ugliness and confusion that's all around us as well as coming out of us. And so they're asking whether in a song or a poem or whatever, why are we so bad? Why are we so bad to each other? What is wrong with us? And why is there so much havoc and confusion in our world, no matter how much money and education we throw at it? But they almost always postulate explanations and reasons that are very different, that fall short of a kingdom person who is poor in spirit. Because being poor in spirit is what leads to this beatitude of mourning, mourning over sin so that you're struck by it and grieved over it. But this is so contrary to our nature. We have this huge aversion, huge aversion to recognizing the problem is sin. We don't want to recognize the problem is sin. The brilliant philosopher and mathematician and Christ lover, Blaise Pascal, one time said this. He said, the doctrine of original sin is so rude and so offensive to us that it is the most incomprehensible doctrine of all. And yet, without it, we become incomprehensible to ourselves. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying, and I see it all the time. We don't want to acknowledge that it's a sin problem, but as we resist acknowledging this sin problem, we stay confused about what's wrong in our world. And so that's why you'll see the media bless their hearts, just kind of like someone kicks open the side door of a, of a movie theater, guns down innocent people, and they just keep saying, how could this happen? Why do people do this? What is going on? How were they not parented? What were they lacking? What, well, where, where was there a deficiency? That some, because people are by nature good, and if the environment had been right, if they'd been nurtured, if, 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 how does this happen? The world stays confused about why we do heinous things, and you will continue to be confused as long as you resist that we have a sin problem that will never be solved by education or money or medical technology or 
governmental policies or housing projects or you name it. We have a sin problem that demands and necessitates something that we cannot do for ourselves. So Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn because if you mourn over sin, you will be comforted and if you will not recognize sin, you will stay confused. Confused, confused, confused as to what is going on. But then Jesus takes this next beatitude and makes it much more personal. He says, when you are seeing and entering the kingdom, you are broken and humble enough to realize that this sin problem is your own problem and not just somebody else's. Well, that is radically different. That is radical. Look at verse five. Blessed are the, what? Meek. For they shall inherit the earth. See, when you're entering God's kingdom, you don't just see that the problem's way beyond you. Yep. You don't just realize it's a sin problem. Yep. You're also humble enough to realize and be willing to say, and I'm the biggest sinner I know. Because I wake up with me. That is not natural. Our tendency is, oh yeah, there's a problem. And you can even call it a sin problem. And there's these sinners out there somewhere that are messing up our world and our culture. If more people were like me, it'd be a better place. Jesus is actually saying, if that's you, my friend, you're probably not in the kingdom. Did you know that you could go straight to hell having never murdered anyone? Having never committed a heinous crime to the degree that our world would put you in shackles? But you're lost. Meekness, humility, a willingness to own your own sin. That's one of the distinguishing marks of kingdom people. Christians, they're not afraid to admit their own sin. Paul the apostle called himself the chief of sinners not because he was the worst person in the world but because he knew how holy God was and he lived with himself and the closer you get to God and understand who he is and what he's done the more you see yourself appropriately chief of sinners you don't just point a finger at everybody else as to why the world is so bad you acknowledge your own sin A kingdom person or a Christian goes at it the way G.K. Chesterton did. If that's a name you don't know and you like to read, check out G.K. Chesterton. Delightful. The man wrote volumes of history, volumes of theology, even a fiction series about a priest that's that's a detective that solves mysteries. This man cranked out stuff and he's a delightful writer and a sharp, sharp thinker. He was British and he lived in the 20th century. And at one point, the Times of London, the newspaper, the Times of London did a newspaper series where they asked some of the brightest and best thinkers and writers in their time period to answer this question. They said, each of you get to take a turn answering this question. What is the problem with the universe? That's all. What is the problem with the universe? Which again goes, harkens back to what I've already said in this message. People realize there's a problem. 
Most thinking people aren't saying, problem? What problem? There's a problem. They said, each of you take a turn answering, what is the problem with the universe? And when G.K. Chesterton's turn came, he simply penned one line and mailed it in. Now, this was not because the man was short with words. He was verbose. This man wrote volumes. He was not known for reducing it down at all. Why? Why would he do this? And what did he send in? Here's what G.K. Chesterton wrote and sent to the London Times. He said, quote, the problem with the universe is me. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. And they printed that. Now, just like the Apostle Paul, did he mean I'm wreaking havoc all over London? I'm, he was a kingdom person who was poor in spirit, who was mourning over sin, and who was humble enough to recognize that sin problem has affected me as much as anybody else. Does any of this, to any degree, characterize you? Do you see these distinguishing marks at all in your life? And I know if we stopped right here and I left you here, it's pretty heavy. You would be crushed with a load of guilt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. There's this problem outside of me. It's a spiritual problem, sin problem, and I can't solve it myself. He didn't stop there. Praise God, he didn't stop but went on to say this, when you are seeing and entering the kingdom, you are hungry, thirsty for a solution or a savior that is outside of yourself. Oh, and, and it's worth noting the way he worded this. He didn't say, you'll be, you'll be interested in discussing righteousness a little bit. Oh, you'll be interested in debating righteousness. Oh, you'll be interested in religion. He used words, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want it like you want food. You want it like you need water. And you realize it's outside of me, not within me. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look at at verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Guess what? He doesn't fill you until you're first emptied of you. Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, not busy saying how great you are, and humble enough to say, I'm as much a part of the problem and a sinner as anybody else. Therefore, I'm hungering and thirsting for a righteousness, for a solution, for a savior that's outside of me. It's, it's not in me. The answer's not in me. Remember what we saw in our Proverbs series this summer? Wisdom is not a body of knowledge to master and memorize. It's ultimately found in a person and his name is? Well, guess what? Jesus doesn't just embody wisdom. He embodies everything that we need but lack to be in a right relationship with the God of the universe. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom. Oh, but he's not done. And righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption. It's all about Jesus. Everything we need is found in Jesus. That's why he is the mega gift and blessing that contains all other gifts within himself so that with Jesus you have everything. And without Jesus, you have nothing. You might have religion. You might have attendance pins. You might have a baptismal certificate. You might have the well opinion of all kinds of people that think you're wonderful, but you have nothing that will get you into heaven. Jesus. Jesus. That's why God offers us one gift Jesus. And through Jesus, you are then blessed with every spiritual blessing. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus, opened it this way Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh, they're all found in one place in Christ. In Christ. In Christ, in Christ. You see, when Christ comes into your life, he forgives you, changes you, reconciles you to a holy God, adopts you into his family, gives you his spirit, and gives you his righteousness as if it were your own. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. That is so different than religion. Jesus did not come into this world to start a new religion. There was lots of that already, even more of it today. He came as a king to establish a new administration. He caused the kingdom of God and to call people into it in a radically different way where it's not how great you are and it's not do this, check these boxes, follow these instructions. It is be willing to see I got nothing, I can't do it, it's not within me. Poor in spirit, mourning and humble enough to cry out to God for a righteousness It's outside of you, not within you. That is is so foreign to us. See, the solution to your biggest problem will never be found inside of you. You can see the problem inside of you, but you'll never find the solution there. That is outside of you, and it's found in a Savior, Jesus Christ. Al Mohler said it well. This is just contrary to how we think. Al Mohler said it well when he said, quote, most Americans believe that their major problem is something that happened to them and that the solution is to be found within. In other words, they believe they have an alien problem that can be solved with an inner solution. The gospel says, however, that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not our own, that has to be given to us. So let me show you this alien righteousness. 
Turn to Romans chapter three as we close. Romans chapter three, starting in verse 10. Romans chapter three, verse 10. As it is written, there is, how many people are righteous? Say it louder. And it's almost like he anticipates you say, oh, but what about my sweet grandmother? She never cussed. No, not one. (laughs) Not your granny. We got more cussing grannies today. Most people don't say that anymore. But that used to be a thing. As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. Oh, how about this? We've gotten a little beyond it, but there was the rage for a while in church of seeker sensitive. There's all these seekers, and so let's not sing about blood or sin. Let's not offend them. Oh, check this out. How many people are seeking? There's none who seeks after God. Guess what they're seeking? A booster shot. Show me how I can be a better me. That's what they were seeking. That's why they would be offended by sin and offended by the blood. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, look what, so this is heavy, this is dark, this is hard, this is bad, but here's what Paul's wanting to do by the Spirit. He's wanting us to shut our mouths. We tend to say, well, I'm better than that. Oh, at least I haven't done, oh, we, shut your mouth. Look what he's saying. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become what? guilty before God. Not just to leave you there crushed, but listen, my friend, until you see yourself as a hopeless sinner, guilty before a holy God who could never keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, you won't cry out for a Savior who has done it all for you. You'll still be looking for a booster shot. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. So there's the end of everyone who says, well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were never given for you to try to keep and earn your way to heaven. They were given so that you'd realize the standard shows me how far short I fall. I'm not measuring up to this. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here's good news. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament, he's saying, pointed to this. He's coming. There's a righteousness coming. God is gonna solve our biggest problem. Heifers and doves and grain offering is never gonna be able to do it. He's coming, a savior's coming, a righteous one that will bring it for us. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through, say it, faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Big word, but a really important word. Propitiation means that when Christ died on the cross, it did not just cleanse our sins, it turned back the holy wrath of God that should have been poured out on every one of us and instead it was poured out on his son who satisfied the wrath of God, kept his commands perfectly, lived a perfect life and rose again from the dead. Faith in Christ to all and on all. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith and God never stops being just. He doesn't change his standard to let you in. He remains just and yet he can justify sinners. How? Because Jesus stood in our place. To be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now look what happens when you approach things this way. So different than religion. Where then is boasting. Religion leads to boasting. Remember the two guys in the temple? Pharisee, very religious, lots of scripture memorized, lots of good deeds. How did he pray? Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Oh please. That's where religion will lead you. And the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes but beat his chest and said, oh God, Be merciful to me, the sinner. No boasting, but willing to own his sin, willing to humble himself, and willing to cry out for a righteousness that's not his own, that's outside of him. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You come into this kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in, say it, Christ alone, plus what? Say it again. Nothing. Nothing. Oh my goodness, when you understand that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves and that he's done it all in and through his son Jesus, you will then begin to have a peace that passes all understanding and an assurance and a resting that it's not about me or how I'm doing now. It's about Jesus who doesn't change. You'll stop combing over your life and checking lists. You'll stop revisiting. I know I was seven. Did I really mean it? Today, today is your hope in Christ. And have you hungered and thirst for a righteousness that's alien that has become yours now 
by faith. If it has, oh, rejoice, rest, rejoice. You'll be able to say along with the hymn writer, it is well with my soul. Oh, God, thank you. Oh, thank you for not just being a holy God. Thank you for not just giving us the law that shows us how far short we fall. Thank you for not just creating religion and putting us on that treadmill and saying, go harder, go harder. Thank you for not just cheering us on. Thank you for taking on flesh and coming into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves to have a savior perfectly keep your law, die for us, paying for our sin and absorbing your wrath, and rise again, proving to be equal with God and able to rescue us and keep us. Oh God, thank you for the gift of Jesus and your righteousness that becomes our righteousness. We give you thanks in his name.